Good morning. Welcome the Labor Day faithful. It's good to see you. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here, one of the brand new pastors here. If we haven't met yet, I look forward to doing so. <clears throat> Our text for this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Listen now for God's word to us this morning. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then, there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue Indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. Pray with me. Gracious God, holy God, speak now your liberating and reconciling word to us, and give us the grace to hear it and obey. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So the academic year is upon us now. Kids are back to school. Teachers are preparing their lesson plans. Bus drivers are driving. Administrators are seeing to the day-to-day operations of their schools. Some of us are rejoicing over this news. (laughs) Some of us are anxious about it. Some of us don't really know quite what to do with it. All of us can feel the excitement and the anxiety of a new year, of new opportunities and new challenges. If you're a sophomore or a junior in high school, you'll soon be asked, where are you going to college? If you've just started college, get ready for the first question to be, everyone together now, what's your major? And if you're on your way out of college, there will literally be no end to how many people will ask you what you're doing with your life. Those of us outside the academic calendar might also be experiencing new opportunity and new challenges. This is what we call performance reviews. So even though we might have left schools years ago, we are well aware of the pressures that we have to perform and above all else, to maximize our efficiency. How's everyone doing? Have I painted a dire situation? I mean, how's the anxiety in the room? Are we okay? My point is this. There's probably not a better time of the year for us to reflect upon the Sabbath than on a weekend that we have somehow ceremoniously labored Labor Day weekend. This is my favorite kind of story in the Gospels. The, the ones with, full of unnamed characters with mysterious backgrounds, where characters like this woman just appear before Jesus. We're given just enough information to wonder about these characters and about the circumstances that might have led to this encounter, to this transformation. There's a shroud of mystery over the text that invites us to be characters in the story ourselves, to imagine maybe what God in Jesus Christ might say to us this morning. 
We find Jesus teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath for the last time in the Gospel of Luke. He's been doing this uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, and this is the last time we'll find him teaching on the Sabbath. He comes across a woman who was possessed by a spirit, a demonic spiritual invasion which has left her physically bent over, unable to look up, unable to greet the world around her. We're told she's lived this way for 18 long years. This is the only thing Luke tells us about her. And I wonder if it's the only thing she knows about herself after all this time. Luke doesn't say that she's come to Jesus asking to be healed. Maybe she's given up hope. I wonder if she's accepted that this will be her life. Maybe it's too difficult for her to believe that she could ever be set free, that things could ever change for her. Maybe she believes she deserves the Spirit. Maybe she's been living with that shame for 18 years. I think we're all aware of what shame can do when carried over a lifetime. My point is that spirits like this, spirits like the one that's crippling this woman, makes you feel like nothing can change. Luke also tells us of the leader of the synagogue who is angry because Jesus has healed someone on the Sabbath. He cites the law. There's six days on which you are able to cure someone or, or on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, but not on the Sabbath day. It seems that he's not just angry that Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. Jesus breaks the rules of the Sabbath, but he's angry that this woman has showed up needy. Sometimes it's easier to blame people for needing help than it is to pay attention to God's miraculous presence among us. Weakness makes us uncomfortable, I think. That's why we manage it. There's other days that you can be healed, but not today, not right now. Come back some other time when there's another synagogue leader. And just so we aren't tempted to dismiss this anonymous leader too quickly, we need to recognize that he would have made a fine Presbyterian. He never says the woman shouldn't be healed. He never says Jesus shouldn't heal her. In effect, he just says, this is out of order. Those of you laughing at polity jokes, thank you. Thank you. They told me in seminary you didn't exist, so thank you. Uh, there's other days on which you can heal and be healed, but not today. We've got rules around here. The Sabbath day is about rest, and Jesus is messing with that. I wonder how many times we miss Christ's miraculous power in our midst because it does not match our expectations or disrupts our rules. So we find that spirits like the one possessing this woman is not, these are not the only spirits that leave us wondering, questioning if change is possible. Sometimes our, our own well-intentioned rules, our tradition, the way the system works makes it difficult for us to see how Christ liberates us from the spirits that possess us. I'm convinced that one spirit that Christ needs to exercise from our society, the church included, is the spirit convincing us that our achievements provide our worth as human beings 
that our achievements provide our worth as human beings. We live in a particular moment in human history in which we genuinely believe that we are in charge of constructing our own identities, and that identity is determined by what we do. Here's an innocent example. When we ask young children, what do you want to be when you grow up? We never expect for children to say, I just want to be happy. I just want to be a good person, full of integrity and character. No, (laughs) we don't accept that. The answer I'm looking for is doctor, lawyer, uh, you know, construction manager, president of the United States. Because when they give those answers, then we can kind of assign uh, an identity to them. My modest argument is that this sets us on a course of thinking about our lives primarily through the lens of our own achievements. I've been reading David Brooks' new book, The Road to Character, all summer long, in, in which Brooke, Brooks observes a distinction between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are those virtues that you list on your resume. Really surprising. The skills you bring to the job market and which um, contribute to your external success. The eulogy virtues, on the other hand, are those virtues that are named at your funeral and include whether or not you are honest, faithful, kind, brave. The eulogy virtues, according to Brooks, regard our inner life, our desire to be moral, our search for meaning. But Brooks claims that modern society rewards the resume virtues above all else. Our education system, the public conversation, the economy, all regard the resume virtues as the highest virtues. Whether you're in grade school, middle school, graduate school, or in the middle of your career, Brooks says that most of us have a clearer strategy for how to achieve career success than we do for how to develop a profound character. As Christians, I think we should be concerned about this. Of course, we have our own version of the synagogue leader today, individuals who think the system works the way it is. Right? You could argue that without resume virtues, our society would not make progress. And there are many days that I agree with that. And I'm thankful for the work that God gives us and for the ways in which we take up this work with integrity, with hard work. After all, I think success is a good thing. I want to live in a society where people want to achieve extraordinary feats, where we want to build great things, where we want to work hard to advance medicine, where we value thoughtful and articulate people to help us sort out the laws of our land. This is all true. And just like the synagogue leader who wanted Jesus to play by the rules, this isn't, this isn't bad in and of itself. The problem is, is that it blurs our vision too often such that we can't see Jesus in our midst healing us. What I think is remarkable about this story is that Luke describes Jesus' action through the use of four verbs before this woman can do anything. Right? Luke says that he sees her, he calls to her, he speaks to her, and he lays his hands on her to free her um, from, this, from this spirit before she can do anything, before she even knows how to ask for this healing. Here's the thing. I'm, I'm inclined to believe that Luke, uh, this isn't just a coincidence that Jesus is healing this woman on the Sabbath. I actually think maybe Luke is telling us a story which reveals what the Sabbath is all about which I think is healing. The Gospels record 12 separate stories in which Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. 
12 different stories, all of which are initiated by Jesus and none of which mention the faith of the person being healed. In every Sabbath healing story, those who are healed are described as inactive, at rest, just appeared (laughs) out of nowhere. If you're like me, you might have thought about the Sabbath in one of two ways. One, either as the legalistic practice of rest, which is hard to get my head around, or as the reward of rest after you've worked your work week and you can kind of sit down and rest. The synagogue leader represents the first of these two. For him, the Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath sacredness is really derived from the devotion that one pays to it, how religiously one can keep it, can keep the rules. And his devotion to the legalistic practice of the Sabbath is put on display by Jesus' response to him. Jesus essentially says, according to your rules, you could treat an animal with more dignity than I'm treating this woman who is bent over by healing her. For the synagogue leader, any disruption to the rules is unwelcome. Even the disruption of God's healing presence. Oliver Sacks, the, the great neurologist and author who actually died last week, wrote, wrote an op-ed a few weeks ago uh, on his experience with the Sabbath, which captures, I think, the second way that we think about it, about rest um, as the reward for a job well done. Sachs is a, is a wonderful writer. I recommend the piece to you. I think it's just called Sabbath. Um, and at the end, he writes about Sabbath as something he longed for, but was ultimately out of reach for him. He writes, I find my thoughts drifting to the Sabbath, the day of rest, the seventh day of the week, and perhaps the seventh day of one's life as well, when one can feel that one's work is done, and one may in good conscience rest. Now, I think that Sabbath rest is a good way for us to think about maybe our eternal union with God. But what I find incredibly sad about Sack's peace is that the Sabbath rest was something he could only accept after he achieved it. The beauty of the Sabbath is that it arrives each week on time, regardless of whether or not you were able to get everything that you needed to get done. This disruption, I think, itself is grace. It reminds you of your limits, that you're not defined by what you can do. The uh, rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel reminds us, the Sabbath was not made for the weekday, but the weekday was made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not made for the weekday, the weekday was made for the Sabbath. Meaning, the Sabbath is not the reward after a long work week. The Sabbath is the first day of the week. It's the place from which we start. And we see this most clearly in the creation story. When God creates On the sixth day, he creates human beings. And on the seventh day, they rest together. God invites human beings to rest. Before they could do anything, before he had assigned them a vocation, before they had taken up any work that might uh, lead them to believe that their identity was something that they could construct or build, God invites them to rest with God. When we think about the Sabbath as something that we're doing, whether as legalistic practice of rest or after the end of a long week where we have done a lot and we've achieved a lot and all of a sudden now we get some time to rest, we miss the most important thing about Sabbath, which is God's disorienting grace. On the Sabbath, when we are at rest, we're able to notice God's grace and to be healed by it like this woman. The only appropriate response is to do exactly as she does, to worship God out of gratitude. 
David Brooks thinks that the virtue we need most to recover these eulogy virtues, these virtues that will be named at your funeral, is humility. That humility actually opens the door for grace. Humility is kind of a self-emptying. It's not self-effacing, it's self-emptying. When we empty ourselves of our own accomplishments, our own achievements, our own perfectionism, and we open the door for grace to flood into our lives. And it turns out that one way to cultivate this virtue I think, is to practice Sabbath. Sabbath reminds us of our limits, that we are God's beloved regardless of what we can achieve throughout the rest of the week. And according to God's order of time, we have plenty of time to be present and still before God and allow God to recreate us again and again and again, week after week. We have only to humbly receive God's gift of sheer grace, and to give thanks. This is what the Sabbath is about. Sheer grace. If there was a measure for spirituality, something I think we should uh, take great care in assigning, it must have something to do with gratitude, I'm convinced. That gratitude is the way in which we pay attention to the way God is working in our lives, not maybe the things that we're doing to impress God, things that we're doing to earn God's love, God's favor, I think this is challenging for us to hear, even as good Presbyterians. Because I think many of us like the way the system works, or maybe can't see outside of it. The thing about these spirits, like the one crippling this woman, like the one that's haunting us, whispering to us that you are what you do, is that they're so powerful, we we really feel like nothing can change. So we accept the conditions of our lives as part and parcel of our identity. The miracle of the Sabbath is that Jesus sees otherwise. Jesus calls to us. Jesus speaks to us. Jesus lays his hands upon us, heals us, and sets us free. This is the good news we need to hear as we head into this new year marked by plenty of opportunities to define ourselves by our own performances. One final thought. One thing I know about practicing the Sabbath is that it is nearly impossible to do alone. I must admit that when I read books about the Sabbath by Abraham, Joshua Heschel, and Judith Shulevitz, in which they tell stories of entire communities coming together to worship God, to share a meal, to connect with each other, to leave that identity that that society has imposed upon them behind just for a, a short moment in time. I wish that when I hear these stories that there was a stronger line of continuity between the ancient practice, the ancient Jewish practice of Sabbath and the modern attempt as modern Christians, modern Protestant Christians. I wonder if some of our ambivalence, some of the fragmentation grows out of this discontinuity. And I wonder how we can retrieve that continuity. You know, maybe we're not all going to gather every Friday night and share a meal and worship God and connect with each other Though that actually doesn't sound like a bad idea, (laughs) and maybe we should do that. But we can block out time in which together we shed these identities imposed upon us by either society or by our own expectations and begin to strengthen the common bonds of our collective identities as beloved children of God. Because the Sabbath is not just an idea. It's something we keep with other people. Something we, we, uh, we pay attention to. We practice, not only to redeem time from its obsession with efficiency, with productivity, but in order to experience Christ's healing presence together 
The Sabbath is also not like a theological PED. It's not a performance-enhancing drug. It's not going to make every dream come true. You're not going to be better at your job just because you practice the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a place for us to notice, to pay attention to God's healing presence in our life. So my advice is to find some folks with whom you can begin to block out some time to practice this and to start small and go at a pace that you can realistically maintain over time. And maybe through it, we can become a kind of community shaped by the disorienting grace that God pours out on us when we have the humility to rest. Thanks be to God.